0: To start a stimulating conversation in France, there's a few things you should know first.
1: You can say anything to the French. You don't have to beat around the bush or worry about polite things. It's a sport. It's a game.
0: Coming up, the authors of the Bonjour Effect explain how
2: people communicate across cultures in France. They will hear a word that they don't know, and they'll sort of pick it up like a little butterfly, and they sort of collect words like that.
0: With so many attractions for you to walk to all across Paris, you might find you could use a break from the intensity of the city and its maddening crowds. Susan Cahill recommends you look for one of her favorite hidden garden spaces scattered across the city.
3: You go down these stone, curving steps, you get to the bottom, and it's waterfalls
0: and pools and the most gorgeous rhododendron. The parks and gardens of Paris, and the sport of conversation, the way they do it in France, it's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. In just a bit, the author of a series of guides to Paris recommends her favorite green spaces, where you can step away from the hubbub of the city and smell the roses in the French capital. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with the husband-and-wife writing team of Jean-Benoît Nadeau and Julie Barlow. They offer insights on French language and culture in their books The Bonjour Effect, The Story of French, and 60 million Frenchmen can't be wrong. To help explain the nuance, the je ne sais quoi about how people operate in France. It doesn't matter so much how perfect your French pronunciation is. When you're in France, there are a few cultural insights you need to be mindful of to really communicate one-on-one with the locals. The husband-and-wife team of Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoît Nedo shared what they discovered about how to speak French in their 2016 book called The Bonjour Effect. They're back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves after a book tour in France where the book has been translated into French for the French to learn about their own language, apparently. They join us now from the CBC studios in their home city of Montreal. Bonjour. 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 This is so fascinating that you write a book as Canadian French speakers, so you're fluent in French, but you're not actually French. How did that help you with your teaching mission of the book? You must have had a little more empathy with the rest of us tourists going to France who, who may have learned some French language in school, but we might be clueless about the fine points.
1: Well, the funny thing is that, that even though we speak French, and, and I'm and just to be clear, I'm not a native French speaker. I learned French in school as well. But even though we're fluent French speakers and very familiar with French culture, We still have these terrible misunderstandings with the French. And the origin of the book was to sort of get to the root of why we go expecting perfect communication and we want to indulge in, you know, the art of French conversation. And we get there and it just doesn't work.
0: So for a French-speaking Canadian, you could fly to France thinking, yeah, I speak the language and realize, oh, but I don't speak the culture.
2: Exactly. And even for me, because my, my mother tongue is French. But my culture is not French from France.
0: So what's, what's an example of a, a surprise when you finally do get to France and you realize, oh, I guess I'm not quite as fluent as I
2: hope well, to be? The French say uh, no all the time for anything. It's their default answer. In North America, and that's true for French Canadians, we tend to take a no for a no. Right. For the French, they say no sometimes just because they they're afraid of making a mistake, so they prefer saying no. Because for the French, contrary to North Americans, being liked is not that important to them. It's not being at fault that matters. So saying no is the the right thing to say. In the case of the French, it's uh, often for fear of of ridicule. Mm -hmm. For example, not knowing. Not knowing in France is ridiculous. Uh, You're supposed to know. So if they don't know, their default answer is no because it's their anti-ridicule shield that they put in front of them.
1: But the important thing for, you know, travelers to understand is that no is, for the French, doesn't normally mean, you know, the conversation is over. I mean, they say it all the time. So
0: it's the beginning of a discussion it's about this. It's just the
1: beginning of a discussion, and, and so it's up to you to sort of pull up your pants and keep trucking and keep, keep okay. talking to them until you
0: get whatever you want. So can I check out of the room at 1 o'clock instead of noon? No. Well, then you talk about it a little bit, huh? Then exactly. you talk,
1: and, and eventually, you know, if they're going to change their mind, they'll
0: change their mind. It's just <laughs> They had a chance to, to sort of creep into the reality that they might bend the rules
2: for you. You're, exactly. You right. explain your situation. It works that way in some hotels, and yeah. it's okay. And then, yeah. and then, and sometimes they react Sometimes it's no, it's no, yeah. because it's not possible. And you get that answer in the United States as well. But you the, should
0: expect it to start with no. I get the sense that the French just like to discuss and even debate things. I mean, consensus is kind of
2: boring. Let's talk about it. Let's let's spice it up. Oh yeah, <laughs> and the a conversation with them. You know, it's a story that Julie likes to to tell that. We were at the supper and we were very North American. We were very polite. So Mm -hmm. we were giving our point of view as Quebecers and, you know, being polite and being nice. At one point, Julie realizes that, you know. We're boring. We're boring. Yeah. So she, she produces an enormity. The discussion was about Art Deco and she says... Oh, I think our deco is fascist. It's just like that. and <laughs> they look at us and they say, oh, yes, And they that's love great. it. And <laughs> I mean, then, and
1: then the, and, you know, it just takes off <clears throat> like a bonfire and the conversation gets rolling. But if you, you know, behave yourself and you're too yes. polite and too agreeing too much, looking for consensus and sharing things and stuff, they find that dull.
0: And the traveler is inclined to be polite and, and kind mm. of boring just because they, they don't want to make a faux pas and they just... They want to be agreeable.
2: But in France, they, the way their education is at school and in the family is that they value a lot what they call uh, culture générale, the general knowledge, history, art. Mm-hmm. And and so North Americans, these kinds of things, they tend to view it a little bit elite. Elitist, Someone yeah. who would display too much general culture, would you would regard that person as elitist. And people who have a lot of general culture tend to hide it.
0: So that's not a socioeconomic thing. People of any class could be well-versed in
2: politics and uh, Mm -hmm. history and literature and so on. So they do welcome that. And for North Americans who have a lot of uh, culture along those lines... It's actually quite relaxing to be in Paris because you could just start talking about that and people will be immediately interested.
1: But the French come off as showing off a little bit because they like to display their knowledge, but it's really part of how they're raised. Our kids were in school the year we were researching this book and we saw how the education system really promotes it. Our daughters were asked to one day do a presentation on a, they're 10 years old, a French classic painter, you know, Hmm. so they had to go. And, you know, we got back to North America and the project was, you know, pick your favorite body part and talk about it. I mean, it's just radically different, but they're trained this way, and it's highly valued. It just can sort of set off foreigners who are expecting something more humble.
0: But I always think it's kind of like show and tell on Monday morning when you're in fourth grade. You're not better than somebody else. You just want to show them what you learned the other day or what you did or what you've got. Mm -hmm. And I think in France that, that stimulates the conversation. It's a delightful part about France.
1: It's something to talk about, and they like talking about stuff. So, you know, opinions and facts. They like lots of content in their conversation.
0: Our guests today on Travel with Rick Steves are Jean-Penoît Nédot and Julie Barlow. They're a husband-and-wife team of Canadian writers based in Montreal, and after a decade of living in France, they wrote up what they had discovered about the unwritten rules beyond vocabulary about speaking French in France rather than in Canada. Their book is The Bonjour Effect, and it helps us understand the subtext and what's expected when speaking in France. We have a link to their website with this week's show, and it's at ricksteves.com radio. Now, Julie and Jean-Benoît, you, I understand, translated your book, The Bonjour Effect, into French, and you just got back from a tour of France. What was it like as Canadian teachers and writers and French speakers going to France... With a book that was supposed to explain how their language is different than in other cultures.
2: I was afraid a little bit that they would be a bit defensive, you know. Uh, yeah. But they were very warm to it, uh, to us. In fact, we did a lot of very long interviews, like 45, 50 minutes on radio, TV, newspapers. Uh, and their reaction is one of curiosity. They are not necessarily conscious of what they project. And since our book is very honest in the sense that we take our perspective very clearly, our perspective as North Americans, they find it interesting because it gives them a perspective on North America.
0: They could learn about themselves, too, I suppose. As well, indeed. Were they humble about that? Did they go, oh, that's... uh," They
1: were surprised. We were in a journalism class one day and there was a student who got up in front of the class and said, you know, I I didn't really believe you about these things, particularly (laughs) about bonjour, you know, this word that you have to say all the time. We have a whole chapter about how how necessary it is to say bonjour. And he said, so I I, I went and tested it. And I went into my my bookstore in my neighborhood and I didn't say bonjour and saw what would happen. And he said... (laughs) Indeed, no one talks to you if you don't start the conversation with bonjour. And he said, you know, I felt so uncomfortable. And he said, you know, you're right. We we have this word that we have to use to sort of unblock every kind of communication.
0: And they might not have realized that had they not had the exposure from somebody from far away. It's related to my (laughs) theory that you learn about your own culture when you leave it because you can Mm. look at it from afar and you can gain a perspective that other people have on us. And you might not even realize that when you're immersed in the middle of it. You mentioned in your Mm -hmm. book how the French, uh, they don't talk about money, uh, but sexual
2: innuendo is no problem at all. Yeah, they are not afraid of making a a comment to that effect. One of the reasons why the North Americans think that they are very uh, libertine is the fact that the place of women in that society has always been peculiar. French women have had civil rights a bit later than, than American women, But in fact, French women in society, in conversation, have had a stupendous place for centuries. So it's very interesting. French women worked a lot earlier in numbers. So in France, the relationship between men and women was not something confined to the home. It was something that that was lived publicly for a long time.
1: Well, it's funny because at once you have a culture that, you know, to many North American women seems kind of sexist partly because the jokes about sex are, are they make them easily in public. You know, it can be a little off-putting for a North American woman. At the same time, they have a society that's very, very well organized for women, for parents, but let's be honest, for women with, you know, school that starts very early, guaranteed daycare, and a whole bunch of services in place that make it easy to work and have kids at the same time. And a larger proportion of women work outside of the home in France. And there's also the long history of french women being more part of the conversation in the culture they participate as equals and of course in the conversation the french aren't looking for consensus so you don't have couples that are sort of together projecting one point of view you have couples who are you know arguing in front of everybody and so you know women have to sort of step up to the bat i guess
2: it's it's interesting because socially the place of women is has been high for a long time and French women, by law, retained their birth name on their État civil, on their hmm. uh, official registry. But when uh, we went to get our um, residence card, Julie was surprised to see her name, Julie Barlow, wife Nadeau, épouse Nadeau. Ah. And uh, it's and very I interesting see. because a couple of years back, they, they made laws to forbid terms like mademoiselle and, and you know, because right. it was sexist. but on on the resident card, they have to have, they, they feel obliged to write Barlow, wife, Nadeau. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: I argued with him. I said, I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't even have his name. And they, they said, oh, well, that's the way things are done. You know? oh, so it's still okay. kind of sexist, yeah. 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 yeah it's still
0: this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the French culture and the French language with Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoît Nadeau.
4: Claire Simone, j'espère avoir un chance de vous parler d'art. L'art de Robet. Je sais que vous êtes. Alors, vous avez uh, que à à dit. Je sais rien. And you stop speaking in French, whatever language you're speaking. Well, if it weren't for us, you'd, you'd be speaking German.
3: No, if it wasn't for you, I might be dead. But I would still be speaking French.
0: What stories do you have to share about trying to communicate in France? We're at eight seven seven three 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 Rick. ric There's more just ahead with the authors of The Bonjour Effect, The Story of French, and 60 Million Frenchmen Can't Be Wrong on Travel with Rick Steves. Author Susan Cahill helps us escape to the hidden gardens of Paris in a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And an American expat explains why when people in Paris stare at you, it's their way of showing that they care. Right now, we're looking at how people communicate in France with the authors of The Bonjour Effect, Jean-Benoît Nedot and Julie Barlow. Julie and Jean-Benoît, it's interesting when you study languages, as you have, that different languages have different fortes and different traits, and they're able to give you an insight into the way that group of people think. What can we derive from the French language that gives us an insight
2: into the French mind? It's interesting. Because of their education, the French in France have this attitude. They're very purists. So they're trained to have this idea that there's a a standard of French and there's a a very strong norm. And they they admire dictionaries. In conversation, they will hear a word that they don't know. And they'll sort of pick it up like a little butterfly and they'll put a pin on it in, into their book. And they, they sort of collect words like that. It's very odd. They, they will stop a conversation to ask you about this word and what it means. And it's useful as a stranger because if you want to change the topic of conversation, you just drop something you know they don't know. And immediately they'll go after that term. But But at the same time, they are very creative with their language, even subversive. It's interesting because... It's a kind of reaction to their idea of a very strong norm and the school. You know, they they will tend to jargon and use a lot of slang.
1: Right it, now, they're it, actually using a lot of English. Which yeah, is right now, yeah, yeah. They,
2: they use English right now to as a way of doing uh, d- neology ne- to, to add spice. But yeah. they, for example, uh, in normal conversation, they will never say "j'ai froid," I'm cold. They will say Sakai. A series of terms like this that, that are not uh, school French at all. Okay. It's sort
0: of a declaration of global independence or something, or to break away from the the norms? Yes, exactly.
1: The, the rigidity of the language.
0: I remember yeah. a generation ago, businesses were actually given financial penalties if they used English words in their name or in, in their advertising. Mm-hmm.
1: That, I mean, English is really quite popular. But the French import it and use it in a way to to demonstrate their worldliness or their openness or their sophistication. It's interesting. But they don't use it necessarily for what it means in English, which is really amusing.
0: You know, something very interesting in your book, The Story of French, was just digging into the history of this language, which is such an important language. I mean, it may not be spoken by the most people. I think it's number nine in the number of speakers. But according to your information, it remains one of the top two or three most influential languages. How could that be? I mean, because, you know, a lot more people speak Mandarin or English or Spanish.
1: The contrast with Spanish is kind of interesting because there's twice as many Spanish speakers in the world. But it's spoken, Spanish is mainly spoken in the countries where it's spoken as a, as a mother tongue in the Spanish-speaking countries. French is spoken by many fewer, you know, half as many total French speakers, but they're spread over the entire world. And French is taught all over the world as well. It's still, you know, ranked second or third as an international language.
0: I understand the czar in Russia 120 years ago spoke better French than he spoke Russian, and he was proud of it. I mean, it it really was the respected high culture language, the, the common mm-hmm. denominator among educated people and business people, I think.
2: But most of the rankings that we've studied, uh, one from the MIT, I mean, all of them come up with the same conclusion, that amongst international languages, French is second, third, forth, depending on how mm-hmm. you calculate it. And it's because the number of speakers is only one factor. In terms of coverage, for example, there's 29 to 32 countries that have French as an official language. Uh, that's a lot more than Spanish or Arabic or Portuguese or Russian.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoît Nedot about the story of French and about their book, The Bonjour Effect. Let's go back to the history. I mean, French is, you wrote, it was the most Germanic of the Latin languages. What is Germanic about French?
2: About 10% of of the vocabulary in French is of Frankish origin. And
0: Frankish would be a Germanic tribe?
2: Yes, exactly. Terms like guerre, the terms for shame, uh, honte, all these terms are, are of Germanic origin, not Latin at all and also the the way French constituted itself from romance. Between Latin and French, there was an intermediate language called romance that existed, and that language had a strong influence of uh, Germanic in the way that people uh, used the position of words in the sentence and all that. So if you delve deep into French, you'd find more
0: Germanic connections than you would in Italian or Spanish. Absolutely. In your book, you have three thresholds of the development of the language, Uh, the fall of Rome, the conquest of England by the Normans, and the rise of Paris as a center of power. Very briefly, Mm -hmm. can you walk us through why was that a big deal for the French language, the fall of Rome, the conquest of England, and the rise of Paris?
2: The fall of Rome, uh, I think, was a big deal for uh, all Romance languages in in Western uh, Europe. It was a very slow collapse, in fact, what it did was um, explode Latin into a number of vernaculars. Oh, okay. uh, some of which are still uh, practiced nowadays. There's still about 24 regional languages in France, like Occitan. Provencal is a variation of Occitan. Oh, okay. So when Rome was together, when Rome was
0: the center of civilization, it was all centralized, and Latin was strictly the official language. But when that falls, all of these pent-up local dialects can have a little more freedom to rise to the top?
2: Exactly. So French exploded that way.
0: Uh, How about the invasion of England by the Normans from Western France in 1066? What did that have to do with the French language?
2: Well, what it did is is the most visible example of how, not quite French, it's more proper to speak of Romance, exported itself outside of its natural original domain, uh, which was Normandy, Champagne, Orléans, um, north of Picardy. French exported itself a long time ago as a global language.
1: And it it implanted itself in English. You know, the ruling classes of English for centuries will be speaking French, so yeah. you know, you'll know you see that in the vocabulary of English now.
0: Because that was a turning point in Britain to have a strong central government, which happened because of the, the strength of the Normans who came in with their culture mm-hmm. and language in mm-hmm. the 11th century. And then, later on, we see Paris rising as the center of power, and that really sort of centralizes France around Paris.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened in, in the middle of that process is that what was called François, which is the mm-hmm. language of the Frank. Mm -hmm. literally means that. Frankish, uh, if you want to translate it in English. And, in fact, it didn't exist. It was a kind of uh, scripta, a common language, between areas that spoke Norman, Orleanese, Champenois, and Picard. Ah. And they sort of created a sort of middle language where they avoided the stuff that the others could not understand. This became the sort of middle language.
1: Like a lingua
2: franca. Like a lingua franca. I actually experimented the process because... I went to Jersey Island, mm-hmm. where they still speak Norman. Hmm. And I spent uh, four days with people who spoke Norman, and I, this is exactly what we did. I spoke mm-hmm. with my hmm. Canadian version of French, and they spoke with their Norman Romance language. And we sort of avoided very rapidly everything that the others could not understand.
0: You wrote in your book how after the revolution in the 1790s, of 28 million French people, less than half of them spoke French well. There was like 30 mm-hmm. dialects. But then, with the impetus of the revolutionary government centralizing things, that was just the time when French became established as the powerful language of this powerful country.
1: Yes, and it's it's interesting. I mean, to go back to your earlier question about what language says about the French themselves, it's it's fundamental to understand that, you know, France up until World War I, even to a certain extent up until World War II, is a very linguistically diverse country with a missionary education system trying to, hmm. you know, get rid of all the local languages, ah. dozens and dozens of them, and create this central... So language becomes, for the French, really part of their national identity. And the whole doctrine of assimilation that the French have very strongly, which is very big contrast to the United States and to Canada as well. This doctrine of assimilation is also about language and about this history of, you know, from the revolutionary government on. In fact, before that, hmm. centuries before that, there are attempts to, you know, impose French. And, you know, the French people really believe their, their language is alive and creating a society.
0: Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau wrote The Bonjour Effect to help us better converse in France. They also explore how the French and Spanish languages developed in The Story of French and The Story of Spanish. Julie has blog entries about rude French waiters and news about their new book, Going Solo Absolutely Everything You Need to Become Your Own Boss. It's on their website, NadoBarlow.com. And Nado is spelled N A D E A U. Alinda from Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania joins us on the line on Travel with Rick Steves. Bonjour, Alinda.
5: Bonjour. I was going to talk about an experience I had when I traveled to Paris, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, Before I went, I had spoken to the concierge at the hotel asking for help in getting tickets for the opera and the ballet and, and a few other things. And I would start off trying to speak French every time he would answer the phone. And then he'd say, no, you can speak English. But as soon as I arrived at the hotel... And I started to speak English to him because I recognized it was the same person I spoke with He says, oh, no, you're in France. You have to speak French. So I said, well, what if I don't know the word? He says, well, you can say, comment, and the English word, but other than that, you must speak French. So it was actually really quite fun. My accent was never very good when I studied French in college, but it obviously improved when you were speaking nothing but French. And Mm -hmm. I got to the point where we had breakfast at the hotel, so I would speak to the servers in French. And at the table next to me were some people who were conversing with each other in English, and they asked me a question, very halting French, Ah. about something. So knowing that they were speaking English, I responded to them in English rather than in French, and their comment was, oh, your English is so good. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, thank you. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to embarrass them by saying <laughs> I'm an English speaker.
0: Good so, for you, Elinda. Uh, that's a good example of uh, really connecting with the culture. What, what was the word that the the man told you? Comment dit-on?
5: Comment dit-on? How does it said? Am I pronouncing? Ah. I may be pronouncing mm-hmm. it wrong.
0: That's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. You say it absolutely right. Well, those <laughs> are good tips, Elinda. Thanks for your call.
5: Oh, you're welcome. Good to talk to you, and it was very interesting listening to your set.
0: Thank Thanks. you. Take Thank care. You.
5: Bye-bye.
0: Bye. William's calling in from Miami in Florida. Hi, William.
6: Hi. Yeah, I like to go to France every other you know year or so, and uh, I've been studying French for a few years. I'm in no way fluent, but uh, I, the French seem to find me impossible to understand. You know, when I try to speak to them, in Leon last year, I stopped the guy on the street and asked him, you know, the direction to the museum, and then he said, you know, excusez-moi, so I repeated it. Then he said in English, it kind of exasperated, he said, what are you trying to say to me? <laughs> I said, I'm asking where the art museum is. He said, well, it's right, it's right down the street. I said, is my French that bad? He goes, no, no, it's fine. Then he ran off.
0: Oh, man. What is with that? Yeah, <laughs> Julian Zadbenois, because uh, I've found the same thing. I, I do my best in my horrible French, and of course the French speak better English. So they just said, stop screwing around, let's talk in English.
6: I was wondering if if they appreciate uh, your attempt to try to speak French, or they would they prefer we just stick to English?
2: No, I think they do appreciate a lot. They uh,
1: they do, but they they have this culture of of correcting each other, right? Like I they, think it's a they, cultural
2: they, thing, yeah. And we shouldn't yeah, take person really
1: we shouldn't it. take it no. personally. No, no, never take it personally. It's just oh, I the did. They've they've
6: always been nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I I think they, William's they, question is good. Are they sort of um, put off by our butchering their language? But if we're well meaning, they respect it.
2: Yes, exactly. And they're they're glad and their idea is to show you a courtesy by answering in English if you insist on uh, keeping speaking French. They will respect that. But that said, they ha- do have a culture of very good enunciation and indeed. Oh, they, yeah. they, they have a, an expression that is a bit odd and even awful. It's it's when someone speaks very good French, they will say un, un français bien châtié well-chastised French, Whoa. which means, yeah, so they have this, this idea that, that you have to honor French by speaking it as best but as, as the possible. the funny
1: thing is they don't, that's not just for foreigners, that's for the French themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they correct each other all the time. They correct us with our accent.
0: Well, I love that idea that they respect the language and uh, your, mm-hmm. your comment earlier about a new word to be like a little butterfly. Let's grab it and pin it yes. to the wall and study it. And I do think that Americans have a, An accent that must grate against the French ear. I don't know, they must find it almost cartoonish American compared to the Queen's English in Britain.
6: I'm originally from Texas. That might be part of the problem.
0: All right. Hey, well, William, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye now. And Garen is calling from France. Hello? Yeah, hi, Rick. You're actually calling from France?
7: I am. I'm in Biarritz, France right now.
0: All right. Well, how are you doing in... uh, This is Basque country in France, right?
7: That's correct. Yeah, Uh, doing great.
0: All right. What's your thoughts about the language and the discussion we're having?
7: Well, you know, as an American, we always hear about how kind of some of the things you guys are talking about, you know, how the French can be kind of cold and a lot of people kind of debate, well, is that the Parisian thing or is it French? And, you know, if I try to speak, you know, one time I pulled out the few words of French that I know and they immediately switched to English and they had this, you know, exasperated look on their face and I felt dumb for even trying. And Uh, I've always had good experiences in Paris, but here in the Basque country and in Biarritz, where I live, people are so over-the-top friendly. I live with my girlfriend here, and all the time we find ourselves telling each other, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth that the French are inhospitable or cold or anything. We just have, every day, the most amazing just kind of examples of bumping into people and and hospitality and warmth. And people Mm. just are so excited when you are making an effort to speak in French. And it's just been a pleasure to get to speak French here.
0: But you're showing interest and respect to the local language and culture, and that probably wins people over. And if we can just not compare it to the United States and not try to tell the French how to do it, but just become temporary French people, I think life goes much better and we enjoy a lot warmer welcome.
7: Exactly. Mm. Also, it's kind of like a funny paradox where the French are so proud of their language. Almost 10 years ago now, I went to school in Po, which is about an hour from here, Mm -hmm. and I studied in the language program, and it kind of was a dual-purpose language program where foreigners learned French, and then the local kids learned how to become French teachers. And it was really interesting kind of seeing from the inside that there really are a lot of people who are very passionate about the language, you know. It used to be true that French was spoken all over the world, and it's a little bit less so now, and they were just, they were kind of evangelists, you know, that they were passionate about going out there and kind of helping bolster the language again. And even if you butcher the language and if you speak it terribly, almost in kind of like a self, uh you know, aggrandizing way, they say, oh, well, the thing is, French is so hard. It's a really complicated language, <laughs> very difficult. It's almost impossible for foreigners to learn. <laughs> so they almost like extend that olive branch where, You know, they kind of get to pat themselves on the back but then throw you a life raft at the same time. Uh, So then you just kind of agree with them and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really hard, but it's so beautiful, so it's worth the effort, and I'm really enjoying it. And then everybody kind of lights up and it works out in your favor.
0: All right. Well, Garen, thanks so much, and uh, happy travels and stay in touch.
7: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julie Barlow and Jean-Penois Nadeau. Their books are The Bonjour Effect and The Story of French. Julian John Benoit has been so not only interesting but educational for me to be able to talk with you about both the language and the culture of France. Now, clearly, you have a joy of speaking French. Can you just sum up our conversation, sharing for you what's the joy of speaking French?
1: For me, the joy. I mean, I was handicapped a little feeling when I began living in France by the feeling that my French wasn't perfect, and then I realized that the real pleasure of it is just jumping into conversations. You can say anything to the French and they'll come back with something. You don't have to beat around the bush or worry about polite things. And I think that the real challenge to overcome in France is this love of confrontation, of clashing opinions. For me, that's the fun. I feel like a—you just it's a sport. It's a game.
2: There's the joy of speaking French and there's the joy of speaking the French way, which is mm-hmm. not quite the same thing. All right.
0: Julie and Jean-Benoît, merci and au revoir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Au revoir.
3: On the left bank, Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Many young existentialists sitting in the cafes with one cup of coffee and one croissant and talking of love. But uh, they do not say, Je vous aime or je t'adore. No, 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 no. They say in a Parisian jive talk,
4: Ah, ce qu'on est bien.
0: You'll find more with Julie and Jean in our show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We look for the hidden gardens of Paris. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. For me, Paris is the capital of Europe. It's home to the grandest boulevards, the biggest palace, and some of the greatest museums. But amid all that grandeur, are neighborhoods with parks, gardens, and beloved squares. Sure, you got to see the big sights... But the personality of Paris is found in its intimate spaces, the spaces where people gather, where life of the city is celebrated. Susan Cahill is the author of The Hidden Gardens of Paris, and she joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves for a neighborhood-by-neighborhood journey into some of the city's hidden pleasures and the stories that come with them. Susan, bonjour.
3: Bonjour, Rick.
0: What fun to have a focus on Paris that is the greenery, the beautiful people spots, the gardens. Uh, How do you know Paris so well, first of all?
3: Well, my son lives in Paris with his lovely wife and beautiful daughter who was born there, and I've been visiting. (laughs) She's now 15, and I have gone three or four times a year at least, and I've stayed there for a month at a time. So I spent a lot of time walking from – just looking for them.
0: Paris is a great city for walking, and I, I love to encourage people just to, you know, you got to see your major sights, of course, but right. spend time, actually plot out time to just wander with a spirit of sort of curiosity to, to venture into little nooks and crannies. You really find some beautiful spots. Oh, I know. Tell us, tell us a moment when you were just wandering and you stumbled onto a wonderful, delightful little garden that nobody knows about.
3: It may be my favorite, but I hate to talk favorites because they're all my favorite But I was wandering around 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning, uh, the garden that goes with the École Normale Supérieure, the ENS garden where all the brilliant young students
0: go. ENS.
3: ENS, École Normale Supérieure. But it's the students' garden, and it's open to the public without any checking of anything on Sunday mornings.
0: Okay, And, and what was so special about it?
3: Beautiful big trees, but the slant of the boughs is almost like it's prearranged. And under these trees, there are tables for two, chairs for two. And the morning I was there, there were students just sitting there chatting with one another. There was mm. a beautiful fountain in the center. And of course, the sound of a fountain is magical. And then it's ah. surrounded by tall walls, and in the those walls are set sculptured heads of the great geniuses of the ENS. The sculpture is very good, but the representation of geniuses is overwhelming.
0: So you, you found a beautiful natural setting where you cut a slice of the people of Paris exactly, by surprise exactly. in a candid moment. You know, one beautiful experience I had was stumbling onto a Roman theater. I bet you know the park I'm thinking of. Yes,
3: Lutes. Of.
0: Lutes. Lutes. Arendi yeah. Lutes. Describe that, because I just couldn't believe what a tucked-away gem that was, and I had never heard of it.
3: Right, and it was very hard to find, because I had heard of it, but I couldn't find it. But uh, it looks like a Greek or Roman theater. It has the same you know, arrangement of seats going up high on a slant, and then in the middle is the sandy ground where the sports happen. And, you know, if you've been to Rome, you can see that, only it's on a much smaller scale. But it's very clean. It's very empty. Now little kids ride their bikes around it. But it is truly a Roman space.
0: So that's the Arena, arena di Lutus. Lutus,
3: L-U- L-U-T-E-C-E.
0: That's right. And you can, it's not that far off the Seine on the, on the left bank. Right. And arena is actually, I, I believe, the, the Latin word for sand. And it's still got the sand there. What an amazing little, uh, an encouragement to adventure. Right. We just sat there
3: just in wonder, knowing that this was a
0: Roman construction.
3: And they called Paris Lutetia. Cara ah, Lucesia, right. dear beloved Lutessia.
0: So that's a reminder that, that 2,000 years ago there, there was a Roman Paris. And, of course, the city was uh, born on the island in the middle of the Seine, the Ile de la Cité. Right. And on that island, you talk in your book about a beautiful little square, which is actually a triangle. You're talking the, about the Square it's a square Verte
3: Gallant? That's named right. after Henry IV, their beloved king, who's up on the Pont Neuf, just above this little park, honor his horse, because he was the king that they all loved the most. Though they claim they liked Charlemagne, but Charlemagne was short and fat and couldn't read. So that was just something that a historian made up. They loved Henry the IV. He was tolerant. And they built this little, tiny, triangular park
0: in his memory.
3: And it's so sweet and beautiful. This is so sweet.
0: And it's in the shadow of the Supreme Court of France. I mean, it's (laughs) surrounded by all these uh, overwhelming buildings. And then here you have the quintessence of charming Paris. The old guys are playing patanque, and you got the green benches, and uh, the children running after their dogs, and it's just a delightful little break from the intensity of the city. You can't believe that here we are in the center of the greatest city in the world. It's just enchanting. And you can actually sit at the very tip and dangle your feet over the embankment and the the little um, picnic zones all around the islands are, are very nice. But I love in particular being right on the tip there just in front of the Henry IV statue.
3: And there's a wonderful cafe there if you'd prefer to go inside. Henry IV Tavern. It's right there opposite his statue. And Parisians say it's the nicest wine bar in the city. And... I don't know, because I haven't been in all
0: of them, but (laughs) this one is really special. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're taking a moment to appreciate the hidden gardens of Paris right now with Susan Cahill. Her book is called The Hidden Gardens of Paris, and we're exploring Paris and finding ways to bring out the, the intimate side of the city. Susan, there's so many parks that you talk about in your books, and one thing a lot of us forget is there are parks associated with Museums and galleries, and perhaps my favorite would be the park at Musée Rodin. Right, that was his, his home, and it's surrounded by a little park with a wonderful cafeteria. Yes, tell us about the <laughs> gar the garden at Musée Rodin.
3: Well, some of his sculpture is situated throughout the garden, especially You've got the, the
0: Thinker. The, the thinker, thinker is right the one there. that
3: comes to mind right now, and behind that is the dome of Les Invalides. It's ma- you know, it's just magical to stand there. Yes, and the little cafe is delightful, and again, it's never screaming or crowded, or it's just you know very accessible so you
0: you stroll through this garden, you've just had your coffee there in the cafe, and you you marvel at how the sun yes. dapples apples and plays with the very beautiful statues of Rodin, the greatest sculptor in Europe since Michelangelo and it's all right there. It's just a stone's throw away from Napoleon's tomb at Les Invalides. Oui. Oui. <laughs> another, <laughs> another highlight for me is the Promenade Plantée. Oh, Tell right, about, right. I mean, oh, I'm glad you know, you're if you know broken. the New York City High Line, right. I mean, it's kind of like the High Line, isn't it?
3: Oh, I love the Paris Promenade much more. It's shorter, it's narrower. The people are have better manners. Now I'm going to sound oh, yes. like an old bag,
0: but... Um, <laughs> no, it's I'm true, but, but just so our listeners can understand, this is an abandoned viaduct that's right. been—it's elevated. It's a its a train line that runs above the streets. It's about three miles long, right. and it's a beautiful walk. If you want to—well, when I'm in New York City, I love to do the High Line. It's the same sort of joy in Paris, but— but like you said, it is French culture. Uh, right. You've got a peek into condos. It's, it's sort of like better homes and gardens sort of uh, in person. When you look into all of the condos, right. the fine landscaping, the joggers, you really feel like a, a temporary Parisian.
3: Yeah, and everybody, nobody, you know, acts irritated with you. And it's just it's so comforting to walk that thing. I live in a very noisy, rude city, which I love, but still,
0: uh, it's not like Paris. One of the most interesting parks to me is, I don't know if you can call a cemetery a park, but a cemetery is a park to me, and it's filled with permanent Parisians. The most famous cemetery in Paris is Père Lachaise. Yes. What would you recommend about Père Lachaise? How does that grab a
3: travel? Well, it's, it's a place It's haunting because almost every headstone has a name on it that, of an artist or someone who has just stirred your soul and meant something to you in in your own life. Uh, Poulonc is there. Colette is there.
0: Uh, Chopin is there. Yes, and uh, Berlioz. Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison of the Doors.
3: And that always has people around it, always. But it's very stirring because... It's as if, you know, the history of Paris
0: is gathered there, and yes, in the form of ashes, but still. And you can follow a map, and you can go from Chopin to Jim Morrison to Edith Piaf, and you can learn a lot about Paris, and they're all right there, and they they never move. Exactly. (laughs) That's true. Well, speaking of dead Parisians, let's talk about live Parisians. And if you're looking for life in sort of a park, I think there's a temporary park they set up every summer Along the banks of the river, isn't there?
3: Yes, the plage.
0: The Perry Plage, the beach of Paris.
3: Right. It's gotten very overcrowded now, but I was very happy to find it because it sounds like a great idea, but it can't be too crowded
0: or it sounds so great. It's quite a scene. Yeah. It's quite a pot it's, it's sort of a trendy scene. Right. Yeah. One thing I like to do is rent a bike. Paris has this great uh, bike program where for just a pittance, you can pick up a bike at one of those racks. Right. Or you can rent a bike at a bike rental place, and with the, with the bike you can go right along the the river That's on right. the bank.
3: My family uses bikes; they don't have a car, and their little girl learned how to bike when she was about six in Paris. Do
0: you take your granddaughter to a park? I what don't. do you do? To you don't?
3: Well, I I mean not on a bike.
0: No, I don't take her. <laughs> no, much. no, no. But I'm thinking what I would like to do if I was a grandpa in Paris is take my grandchild to the Tuileries and rent one of those little sailboats that you push around with a stick in the pond. Isn't that a classic scene? Absolutely.
3: They have a lot of stuff for kids there. They have puppet shows and several trampolines. And you'd think, you know, an American mothers would be, where's your helmet? Where's your helmet? They don't do that, (laughs) you know? They just enjoy themselves.
0: Susan, you've been in enough parks to know that Paris has a strange approach to grass. Are you supposed to sit on it or are you supposed to look at it? I I really can't figure that out.
3: I just stay off it because the signs say stay off the grass. And for the most part, uh, the people respect that. Um, Uh, By the way,
0: do you know what the definition of a split second is in Paris? No. It's the time it takes between when you step on the grass and a policeman blows his whistle.
3: (laughs) That's a good one
0: because it's true. It's crazy. They don't and you miss just sit a beat. On those, you sit on those, those green folding chairs and you settle into the gravel and you look at the greenery. <laughs> There's a few parks where the grass is part of the joy, but for mostly you look at it and they're gorgeous parks like Luxembourg Gardens. That's one of my favorite gardens.
3: Yes, that's beautiful. And those statues around the pool, those are the great women of Paris who are usually ignored. You don't hear too much about them. But the uh, busts, are just lovely. And the one in particular, Laura Deneuve's, she was the woman that Desaude loved, and she wouldn't look in his direction. <laughs> so I was always, I always got a kick out of that one. She's so graceful and sweet and ideal, and he adored her.
0: Paris is the kind of city that's at its best when you just start walking around. We're taking a moment to locate and appreciate the hidden gardens of Paris right now on Travel with Rick Steves. That's the title of Susan Cahill's book, which started her series of Paris guides. Susan's also written The Streets of Paris to help us follow in the footsteps of famous Parisians throughout history and Sacred Paris as a guide to the city's most important religious buildings. We have more with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Susan, I think the challenge for our travelers is to see the big, famous sights but make space for the serendipity. And you find the serendipity in the parks. For instance, the Place des Vosges. I know that's a chapter in your book. It's a beautiful square that is a sort of a, a neighborhood living room. And one of my favorite moments in any park is to sit there... Next to the mothers and the fathers with their children playing in that sandbox, the kids are in the sandbox you got a statue of the king behind you you 're surrounded by all this great monsard roofs and classic Parisian architecture, and you really feel like this is a city that is a collection of neighborhoods yes tell me tell me a moment in a park where you felt like this is the pithy essence of paris well,
3: that is one and some of these places are hard to find i wouldn't have known. Valle Suisse, Uh, it's on the cover of Hidden Gardens of Paris. You go down these stone curving steps and you get to the bottom and it's waterfalls and pools and the most gorgeous rhododendron and trees and sunlight. And there was just a, a woman sitting by herself, but she was obviously having her own private moment. I did not interfere. But it was a very private... That's another thing about Paris. It's very possible to find solitude. Uh, You wouldn't think that would be the case. It's a big city, lots of people. But you do have
0: access to, you know, your own private moments. And that's probably why parks are so beloved in Paris. Because it's an intense, congested city. It's it's a high-energy place. And people, just human beings, need that tranquility. And we can find that tranquility. Susan Cahill, thanks for joining us and thanks for writing Hidden Gardens of Paris. Thank you, Rick. There's more about Susan Cahill's specialized guides to Paris as well as her literary travel guides to Ireland and Rome and the anthologies of women writers that Susan has assembled. It's on her website, susancahill.net, and that's C-A-H-I-L-L. A few years ago, on a return visit from her new home in Paris, Mary Campbell Barone shared how she found that her fellow Parisians were looking out for her when they noticed she was expecting her first child. In fact, Mary eventually realized that some of the things that might seem like rude or odd behavior in America actually reflected what the French social fabric was about. Mary reminded us that being glared at in Paris is not necessarily something meant to offend you. Glaring is caring.
4: (laughs) Yes. Because people do glare in Paris. They really do. Uh, And it's usually coming from a place of concern. Um, For example, I was in a cafe once with an American friend, and it was kind of happy hour, apero time. So we were all ordering wine and beer, and this person was really, what they really wanted was a coffee with a bunch of milk in it and a lemonade. So they ordered a café au lait which is not something you drink in the afternoon in France, and a lemonade. And the waiter looked at me and just gave me this strangest look, like, What? Are you sure? And I was like, Yeah, give the guy what he wants And he just glared at my friend, went over to the bar, told his coworker, then his co worker glared at my friend, and my friend turned to me and said, what have I done? Did I not pronounce it right? What have I done wrong here? I ordered two drinks. you think they'd be excited. Uh, and I told him, he's just worried for your digestion. All that milk and all that acidity in one sitting, he thinks you're going to have a terrible stomach ache later. And that's why he's looking at you with concern.
0: Glaring is caring. Mm-hmm. Now, in the United States, we've got our wonderful, the bubble of privacy that our car gives us. And <laughs> when we're tooling around in our cars, we yeah. can just, you know, do whatever you want to. <laughs> you know, it's just doesn't, it's like, it's like you're invisible. Mm-hmm. It seems like you're almost got that bubble of invisibility on the streets of Paris without a car.
4: <laughs> you, you really do. Well, sidewalks sort of work like roads anyway. So you stick to your lane. They've got their lane. You're moving mm-hmm. fast. Uh, and you kind of have a, a closeness. You're running into so many different people everywhere. You kind of have a protective bubble around you. Uh to keep you sort of from getting overstimulated. But at the same time, it sort of creates this false privacy. So there's a lot of nose picking that goes on, a lot of staring, and you kind of forget that they can see you.
0: But you recommend in your blog to actually give it a try. Yeah, (laughs) Go stare at people. Go
4: stare at people. And they'll still write back, Don't, (laughs) don't stare and smile. Okay, right. staring and smiling stare as if is if you're a looking bit of, through
0: a one-way mirror.
4: Yes, staring and smiling is an invitation to sort of like, hey you, want to come talk to me? Right. And you know, maybe you do. But, but just stare. Not.
0: I, just I like that one-way mirror sort of feeling. One-way mirror. You stare at somebody through a one-way mirror, you don't really care how you look. Hmm. You've got a free chance to stare at them.
4: Oh yeah. Yeah, and it's not mean. It's or you don't, you know, it's just looking.
0: I'll
6: try that next time. Best wishes, Mary.
4: Thanks, Rick. It's been a pleasure.
6: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz hall and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gurzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious
0: travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.